Uh, hi, w welcome back. Uh, I want to thank everyone for coming today. I, of course, uh, want to thank our student organizers and everyone else who put forward such a great effort to make this conference uh, what it's been over the last couple days, which I think is fantastic. Um, I'm extremely pleased and honored uh, to introduce uh, my former boss and uh, a very much current friend, Robin Steinberg, who is the founder and executive director of the Bronx Defenders. Uh, Robin is a leader and a pioneer in the field of comprehensive indigent defense. She basically made the field of comprehensive indigent defense. Uh, she's a 1982 graduate of the uh, New York University School of Law. She's been a, yeah, woohoo. Uh, uh, UVA Law, too. Woohoo! Uh, uh, she's been a public defender her entire career, starting as a criminal trial attorney uh, with the Legal Aid Society of Nassau County, uh, moving on to uh, the Criminal Defender Division of the Legal Aid Society of New York City. Uh, she then became a founding member and deputy director of the Neighborhood Defender Service of Harlem, which was on the forefront of comprehensive or holistic defense. And she took that model and ran with it uh, starting in 1997 at the Bronx Defenders, which she founded. Uh, so this idea of holistic defense, for those of you guys who don't know, it's a client-centered model of public defense that uses interdisciplinary teams of advocates uh, to, to address not just the criminal defense question or case, but uh, also to get at the underlying causes and collateral consequences of criminal justice involvement, to you know, uh, meet the, the, the entire needs, the whole social and legal needs of uh, uh, her clients, of Bronx Defenders' clients. Um, and she turned this uh, new paradigm into a national and international model. Uh, today, Robin advocates nationally and internationally for holistic defense. She delivers papers, she writes articles, she conducts training sessions, she builds new public defender offices as she's helping to do right now in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She's a frequent comment, uh, commentator on uh, local and national uh, news. She has been honored by the National Legal Aid and Defender Association for, quote, her exceptional vision, devotion, and service in quest for equal justice. Uh, Harvard Law School awarded Robin its Wasserstein Fellowship in recognition of her outstanding contributions and dedications to public interest law. She somehow finds the time also to be a teacher, teaching uh, trial skills classes at various law schools, most recently, I believe, Columbia Law School. Uh, I think we're going to work hard to convince her to come here and teach a couple uh, short courses or longer courses, if she's so willing. Um, but for me, she's more than anything else one of the best and most inspiring bosses I've ever had. And I, I say one of only because I don't think Risa is in this room, but um, <laughs> a, a word might get back to her. Uh, uh, but no, it, 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 I, I count myself lucky to have worked under two such fantastic uh, women teachers and lawyers. And Robin is genuinely an exceptional and amazing lawyer, not only for her skills in the courtroom, maybe least for her skills in the courtroom, which are outstanding, uh, but for her compassion and passion 
for her clients and for their interest, for her leadership and for her vision. I mean, she's genuinely, and I don't use this lightly, uh, a living legend in uh, the defense world and really should be a living legend in the legal world more generally. Um, with the help of a few other pioneers, she conceived of and uh, 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 created this new paradigm for public defense, uh, providing the kinds of social and legal services, su the support for uh, uh, the citizens of her community, uh, the kinds of services that a good government ought to be providing. She's literally doing the work that the modern American state has lamentably, lamentably not seen fit to do. She's working for distressed communities, not against them. Um, on that note, I'm reminded of a response I once heard Robin give, and I hope I'm not stepping on any of her lines from her, her remarks later today. Uh, um, a response I heard Robin give um, when someone asked, you know, how do we fix what's broken about the criminal justice system? And she said, uh, the unfortunate thing is that the system is not really broken, it's efficiently doing exactly what it's set out to do, which is uh, incarcerate poor people of color in mass. Um, what she was getting at with that radical, but unfortunately, I, I think, true statement is that the system has misdirected its energies. And she knows that the system is unlikely to redirect its energies, so she's taken it upon herself uh, to do that work for the system. This is, I think, what she meant when I heard her another time refer to the Bronx Defenders as a crime-fighting outfit. Um, uh, you know, it's, it may strike you as odd to hear a public defender office referred to as a crime-fighting outfit, but that's precisely what the Bronx Defenders is because it's rooting out and combating the causes of crime. Robin understands that crime is a symptom of systemic inequality and a lack of opportunity far more often than it's the product of an evil or immoral choice. But I, I don't want to paint too bleak of a picture of the community that the Bronx Defenders serves. Uh, my time at Bronx Defenders um, taught me that, you know, though there is poverty, though there are problems there. There's a richness and vibrancy to even the most distressed communities. I think that's perhaps one of the most, to me, upsetting themes of the most recent election was uh, the repeated characterization of our inner cities as, you know, for lack of a better word, hellholes. Robin sees so much more there. She's always seen so much more there. You go to these communities and you'll see so much more there. Yes, there is inequality. Yes, there is poverty. But there's also humanity and family and warmth and wisdom. Um, uh, last anecdote, a last uh, uh, stepping on uh, <laughs> Robin's lines that I'll do is I remember one time uh, she took up the question of uh, the Bronx jury. There's this pejorative term of legal art, in, uh, and I write a lot about jury nullification, and the Bronx jury is supposed to be you know, a softy or even an extra-legal jury, a jury that's willing to nullify. And uh, Robin questioned the whole premise of um, the uh, uh, term. She said, yeah, there's such a thing as a Bronx jury. It's not an extra-legal jury. It's not a nullifying jury. It's the only type of jury out there that's, that is actually applying the uh, burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. These are jurors who understand that 
uh, police officers may lie, um, that understand that defendants may tell the truth, uh, that understand that there is a complexity to criminal cases uh, and uh, there's more than one lens to, uh, by which to uh, uh, see a criminal case. So I, 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 I want to thank Robin for coming here to talk with us today. I want to thank her for exposing me to um, what was, uh, during those three and a half plus years, uh, you know, I, I, I think I gained more insight during my time Bronx Defenders than any other period of my life. Um, and I want to thank her for exposing me to all of that. And really, I don't want to say much more because I've spoken long enough. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Robin Steinberg. Wow, I guess the only good thing about being a legend is that I'm living. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Thank you, Josh, for those incredibly generous and kind words. But Tulsa is the home of the Bronx Defender's newest initiative, Still She Rises the first public defender office in this nation dedicated exclusively to the representation and defense of women in the criminal justice system. Why women and why Oklahoma? Well, women are the fastest growing population in jails and prisons across the country. As men's incarceration rates have declined, it is women who are filling up those six by eight windowless jail cells across America. But why in God's name Oklahoma? Because leading the nation in, the, in this growing trend of incarcerating more and more girls and more and more women is the great state of Oklahoma. It incarcerates women at a rate more than double the national average and six times the rate of New York City. It is, put simply, the ground zero of women's incarceration. We got a call from a client who was afraid that she was going to be arrested. I hopped in my car, yes, the Volvo station wagon with all the Peacenik stickers on the back, along with one of my new attorneys from our team, and we drove directly to the home of our newest client, Tiffany. Now, Tiffany is the mother of three small children living in a two-room, dilapidated house with her kids, her severely mentally challenged sister, and her uncle, who's in his mid-60s. She's really smart, although she's never made it past the fifth grade, and she grew up being bounced from one foster home to another. She and her three children live on food stamps and the $60 that her uncle gets. She receives no other public benefits, has no health care, does not own a car in a place with virtually no public transportation system. It is a life that she was born into, and it is a life that she has brought life into. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. What if your boots have no straps? What if the systems that have for so long conspired against our clients, racial oppression, gender discrimination, lack of economic opportunity, and the vicious intergenerational cycles of child welfare and criminal justice involvement had severed whatever nice, pretty, sturdy straps came with your boots? Tiffany was charged with failing to register her children in school. Yes, that's a crime in Oklahoma that can land her in jail and trigger removal of her kids. There was no time to spare, so our advocates got to work. They gathered records, they spoke to school administrators, and located the family's assigned school. They went out and found backpacks and clothes and food for the girls, and then they began to untangle the complicated web of paperwork that might 
might allow Tiffany and her girls access to whatever meager public benefits Oklahoma might have to offer. Progress. Until they hit the next roadblock. A school official explained that because Tiffany lived 1.4 miles away from school, the buses were only provided if you lived 1.5 miles away from school. So they weren't going to provide bus service for this young mother and her three kids. So this Oklahoman mother was going to have to walk her young children the 1.4 miles to school every morning at 7.15 a.m. through the Sooner State's infamous, fantastic weather filled with wind and heat and ice storms and tornadoes or face criminal prosecution and jail and removal of the children she loves. Our team of advocates did the only thing they could do. They sat down with Tiffany and they mapped out the easiest, safest, and shortest route for their walk to school, hoping that this fragile family could do it. They said goodbye, they hugged the kids, and they left, praying that their work might have made a difference. Now, let me just say something about Tulsa, Oklahoma, for those of you that never been there. It is a town filled with people who take individual kindness and charity as seriously as any place I have ever been. I have witnessed incredible, staggering acts of compassion. From watching my neighbors regularly stop and give Clarence, the mentally ill homeless man who lives under the bridge near my home, food, water, and warm blankets, to witnessing a well-appointed woman with her young daughter dressed in a private school uniform walk up to a complete stranger in a fast food restaurant who seemed to be struggling and gently ask, Sir, would you be so kind as to allow me to buy you a meal? It is a place where individual kindness is valued, but where its systems can be cruel and unbending and indifferent. I say this because Tiffany's girls didn't show up for school the next morning. The root the walk and the newness of everything just made what seemed to be a straightforward fix overwhelming for this family living on the edges of society. Now, I have to be perfectly honest. When I heard that despite our well-intentioned efforts, we had failed to fix the problem or even understand the deeper barriers that existed for Tiffany and her family, I got more than a little depressed. So looking for a local distraction and reminding myself that amazing kindness exists here in Tulsa, I ventured to the state fairgrounds, trying to escape the week's disappointments. Now, as it turned out, the Tulsa County Gun Show was in full swing. And there, among the thousands of Glocks and rifles and automatic weapons, were tables of t-shirts piled high that read, build that wall. Black guns matter. And we will die on our feet before we live on our knees. And sitting next to them, Nazi memorabilia and shackles that have been collected from prisons across this nation, all on display and all for sale. How could a place filled with such kindness also display such hatred? I left the fairgrounds completely confounded. So I set out to clear my head. So that night, some of my teammates and I decided we're going to go to the movies. It's a good thing, self-care. We drove to that wonderful little independent movie theater, yes, one exists in Tulsa, Oklahoma, called the Center Theater. Ready for renewal. Now we're talking good times. Whew, end of the week. The movie playing was Lion. Now, I don't know how many of you have seen this powerful film, but by the end of it, all of us were in tears. 
And when the final few frames of the movie flashed, each year over 80,000 children go missing in India across the screen. All I could do was lean over to my colleagues, try to keep my face up, and cheerfully suggest, why don't we all go out for a drink? <laughs> at least at a bar, we weren't going to have to struggle or face injustice or poverty or hatred. So soon we arrived at the Bohemia, a favorite local restaurant bar, that took our seat at the benches with the bright colored fabric pillows around a dark wooden table in the corner and ordered some cold, tall beers and some thin crust brick oven pizza. Whew, we began to unwind and relax. Finally, the relief we were looking for. Suddenly, a woman ran into the bar. She was frantic and barefoot and breathless. It took us a while to realize that she was in the throes of a delusion that was fueled by mental illness and drugs. And despite the wishes of virtually every single person in the bar, we invited her to sit with, sit with us, knowing that calling the police to intercede with a mentally ill person was going to 100% make matters worse. After a couple slices of pizza and three glasses of water that she guzzled down faster than any human I've ever seen, she finally gave up her mother's phone number, who we called, and who soon came to pick her up. It turns out that she had been involuntarily committed to a local mental hospital and had walked out hours earlier. With nowhere to go and a tenuous grasp on reality, we were her momentary safe haven. Now look, I gotta be honest, that night, I went home emotionally and physically exhausted, and that does not happen often. I did the only thing I could do. I walked up the stairs, I climbed into my bed, I got in between my warm gray flannel sheets with the tiny little hearts on it, I pulled up the white down comforter from the bottom of my bed, and I closed my eyes as tight as I ever have in my life, hoping to shut it all out. I was overwhelmed, and upended and trying to understand and struggling just to get the ground under my feet again. It all felt like too much, too out of control, impossible. Where do you even start? How can you make a difference in the face of that kind of injustice and that kind of turmoil everywhere you turn? Now, I have a sneaky suspicion that some of you may have felt that way lately too. And that some of you may be feeling that way right now about this country. Since January 20th, when Donald Trump became the 45th president of the United States, our world has been rapidly and dramatically changing. How do we make sense of what's happening here? People are being denied entry into the United States because of their religious and national identity. Climate change deniers have a brand new platform Building the wall now seems inevitable. Rolling back reproductive freedom for women has never seemed so close. And there are alternate facts. The ground is shifting under our feet. What do we do? How do we respond? Maybe we should all take refuge under our comfy sheets and pull the comforters up over our heads and wait it out. God knows that's tempting. But we are lawyers. And that means we are empowered. Indeed, we are more than empowered. We are honor-bound and ethically responsible to do more and to uphold justice. So what do we do? What do we do as law students and lawyers? 
We dig down. We double down. We get smarter. We get more focused and we get more engaged. Because lawyers have always been there, fighting for, demanding, and shaping justice. We were there in 1967 when lawyers argued the landmark civil rights case of Loving versus Virginia, invalidating laws prohibiting interracial marriage. And we were there in 1973 when lawyers argued Roe v. Wade, establishing a right to privacy for women who wanted to have an abortion and, yes, control her own destiny. We were there in 2015 when lawyers won Oberfell versus Hodges, clarifying that the fundamental right to marry is guaranteed to everyone, including same-sex couples. And last weekend, as the Muslim ban on travel went into effect, it was the lawyers who were in the airports day in and day night, talking to distraught families, gathering information, and writing motions. It was the lawyers who marched into federal court and convinced a judge to stay the executive order. And it was a lawyer, then acting Attorney General Sally Yates, who stood up and said, no, you will not remove people from this country because of their religious and national affiliation. Not on my watch. I am a lawyer, and it is my job to uphold justice, not destroy it. And guess what? We were there, the lawyers, yesterday, when they argued the state of Washington et al. versus Donald Trump winning a temporary restraining order with national reach that will prohibit the enforcement of last week's executive order entitled Protecting the Nation from Foreign Terrorist Entry into the United States. Law students, lawyers, ours is an incredible legacy of righteousness. Now look, it isn't only the lawyers who are going to shape justice in this country. There are activists in the streets. There are hip-hop artists on the radio. There are journalists in tall buildings and students on college campuses who shape justice too. But we as law students and lawyers have a unique responsibility, an obligation in fact to seek and to shape and to ensure justice because we get law degrees. And make no mistake about it, a law degree is an incredible tool. It's unlike any other. It is literally a license to right wrongs. Fundamentally, the only question for each of you that you have to ask yourselves is what wrong do you want to right? Now look, some of you may want to right the wrongs inflicted on the large corporation aggrieved by the manipulation of an abstruse clause in a sophisticated contract. That's okay. Others may wish to vindicate the fury of an aggrieved spouse. That's okay. Or solve the hurt of an abandoned child. That's okay. But each of you, wherever your career takes you and whatever decisions you make, must decide how you will work for or support justice. Now for me, a law degree became a tool to right the wrongs in the criminal justice system on behalf of some of the most marginalized, demonized, and oppressed people in this country. First, by learning how to be the best lawyer I could be, focusing on each individual client and fighting like hell to beat back the crushing force of the criminal justice system. And later, by starting the Bronx Defenders and growing, nurturing, and expanding holistic defense as a brand new way to think about public defense. Holistic defense means advocating for clients in a more powerful and relevant way. It means looking beyond the criminal case, 
We grapple with the issues that brought the clients into the criminal justice system and provide lawyers and advocates to defend them in any criminal, civil, or administrative arena they might find themselves. Our lawyers and advocates valiantly push back and fight back against the interlocking systems that come after our clients one by one, family by family, community by community. That goes without saying. But at the core of holistic defense, there is something else, something more. It is the promise of truly walking arm in arm with our clients, not only through the doors of the courthouse, but in the streets of their own communities, down that broad boulevard to a more just and equal world. Holistic defense aligns you with clients and their experiences in ways that may be unimaginable in traditional defender and legal models. By locating the defender office in the client community, you say, we're here with you, not with them. By broadening the scope of services to include civil legal services, family defense, housing, immigration, and social service support, things that clients really need, you say, we're here to serve you, not them. And by engaging in community organizing and systemic change to advance the needs of your clients, you say, we march with you, not them. I need to pause here for a second to talk about something I've been hearing an awful lot from your generation of law students. The narrative that doing individual representation for clients from low-income communities is ineffective, or too compromising, or too disheartening, or not effective enough. And that somehow impact litigation is the more honorable, more important, and more powerful thing to do than individual representation. Maybe some of you out there even think that impact work is the only way to really shape justice at all. I'm here to tell you that nothing could be farther from the truth. First, people need lawyers, not just bodies, not just suits, and not just cogs in the legal system. They need real lawyers whose loyalty and dedication to them is undeniable, unwavering, and uncompromising no matter what. Now that might sound really simple. You're like, yeah, okay, big deal. That's what, that's, what I, that's what I've learned. But it's not so simple. And to live it for each and every client, each and every day, is going to take a Herculean commitment and all of your talent and all of your focus. The power and the impact of that experience, the one standing next to someone, fighting with everything you have on that individual's behalf, should never be underestimated by you. Of course, impactful systemic work is called for when we want to shape justice. But it works best when it is grounded and guided by the detailed, intimate, and individualized representation of the clients and the communities that you will serve. We at the Bronx Defenders have done our share of big systemic impact work, to be sure. But absolutely all of it has been grounded in the sophisticated understanding of our clients and their communities all of it has been gleaned from client stories and client experiences. Make no mistake about it, real devotion to individual, individual representation will be and can be for you a transformative experience and process. Because when you truly immerse yourself in the client community with your individual clients, you not only amplify their voices, you begin to actually internalize their struggles. And after a while, you cannot help but to finally see the system through their eyes, 
as an entity capable of destroying them, their families, and their communities. And in the criminal justice system, that means that you cannot help but see the vast regime of enmeshed penalties and fines and fees and probation and prison as anything other than what it truly is, which is the systemic expropriation of the little that they have left. You cannot help but see the police through their eyes, not as a resource or a place to call for help, but rather as a brutal occupying force, something to loathe and something to fear. And through those insights, something amazing will happen. You will begin to break down all those legal silos, the ones that law school has worked so hard to construct, as if con law was separate from property law and property law was separate from evidence and evidence was separate from welfare law. You begin to expose the connections between poverty and race in the criminal justice system. And it's through your individual representation that you cannot help but see the larger systemic issues that will crush your clients and their families and their communities. You can join with clients to challenge the traditional boundaries of lawyering and the very nature of the relationships between lawyers and clients. And here's what I mean. At the Bronx Defenders, it was learning to see the world through our clients' eyes that gave us the idea to sponsor legislation to allow charitable bail organizations to exist and to create the first charitable bail organization, the Bronx Freedom Fund, in 2007, frankly, long before criminal justice or bail reform was even a thing. And it was through seeing the world through our clients' eyes that we finally understood that along with other injustices, one of the worst was just how long everything took taking an enormous emotional, physical, and financial toll on each of our clients in the Bronx. That insight led us to sue the governor and the entire court administration for the unconscionable under-resourcing of the Bronx court system and the systemic delay that denies our clients their right to even get a day in court, making, frankly, the entire system a mockery. And yeah, talking to our clients about something as mundane and simple as how to get their wallets back from police custody once they've been arrested led us to sue NYPD, who were violating their own rules and regulations time and time again and had outrageous forfeiture practices. And finally, it was in hearing the stories and voices of women in the system and watching their numbers grow day in and day out that led us to march out of the Bronx and down to the Bible Belt of America to set up a new office with a new focus in, yes, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Client voices matter. Individual representation matters. Do not be drawn into the notion that, the only, that only broad-based challenges to systemic injustice matter, or that they're the only way to shape justice. Yes, challenging unfair policies that affect hundreds and thousands and even millions of lives is important and righteous and good. But touching lives matters too. You shape justice each and every time you stand next to someone and demand that they be treated with dignity and humanity and respect. You shape justice each time you elevate their stories and experiences of the people that you will defend. There are no alternate facts when it comes to injustice only the grisly, grim realities of the vestiges of racism and marginalization and oppression, disenfranchisement and injustice that we all must pledge to combat. So I look around this room and I'm heartened by your interest in lawyering for the public good. 
And I'm thrilled that so many of you want to find a cause and rebel against a system so clearly designed to maintain the status quo, a system whose ultimate purpose is to keep wealth in the hands of the wealthy and power in the hands of the powerful. And after more than 30 years of doing just that, here's my advice for you. Find what inspires you. And then take that inspiration and use it to change the world. Now, also be aware, some will raise the question of what drives you to do the work that you're going to do or even support the work that you want to support. And some may ask, those of you who come from privilege, why you want to work to dismantle the very system that has so advantaged you. Well, perhaps it's because you believe that you are unjust beneficiaries and therefore obligated to dismantle the very system that privileged you at the expense of others. Or maybe you just can't stand what you see. The rank unfairness of it all just makes your blood boil and it all just seems too wrong. And what about those of you who truly believed in the system you were taught to respect, a system where people are supposed to be equal and treated with dignity, until some moment made it clear that such a system simply doesn't yet exist. And it's out of that disillusionment that you want to create a system consonant with what you used to believe. Does it matter? Not in my view, it doesn't. A passion for justice can be ignited for all sorts of reasons. Some intellectual, some emotional, some religious, some personal, and some simply philosophical. Whatever the reason that motivates you, they are all legitimate. The ability to be a warrior for justice is not exclusive, not to any one person, perspective, or cause. That mantle is there for the taking, and the politics of personal identity has no place in determining who is a legitimate warrior in the struggle and who is not. Now, I know that that statement is going to make a couple of you raise an eyebrow. And I am aware that there is a substantial body of scholarship that argues that race and gender and class identity are necessary prerequisites to the true understanding and advancement of the poor or the disenfranchised or the marginalized. I reject that notion. While it may provide and does provide a powerful personal connection to the cause or the people that you represent, it is by no means the only route to finding a cause that moves your soul. And it should not be the only metric by which the legitimacy of one's righteousness is measured. Your lack of personal experience does not limit the ferocity with which you may advance your cause, nor does it undermine your legitimacy in doing so. Personal and cultural history provides invaluable and critical insights, but it does not entitle those to have a proprietary interest in those causes. And by suggesting otherwise, we will elevate territoriality over inclusiveness and allow turf wars to undermine our pursuit of true, lasting change and shaping justice in this country. Let me be clear. You can be young and fight for the elderly, black and fight for migrant workers, male and fight for reproductive freedom, white and fight for racial justice, physically challenged and fight for Tibet, rich and fight for the poor. It does not matter whether you are a member of the community that your work and goals seek to advance. The only thing that matters is that it is deeply true to you and that is the cause for which you're willing to lay it down each and every minute of each and every day throughout your career. 
As long as you remain devoted and uncompromising, you can and will be a force for change, and you will shape justice and don't let anybody tell you differently. Look, fighting for justice is a calling, and for heaven's sake, it is not about your work-life balance. It's about finding the thing that you thing that you are so wildly passionate about that you don't want to find balance when all you want to do is go to work because it's there that you are at your most passionate, your most alive, and proud most of who you are in the world and the difference you are making and how you will contribute to shaping justice in individual lives and in impactful ways and across this nation. I know that in public defender work, I found that passion. And it has given me more than I can ever give it back. A wonderful life filled with meaning and steeped in gratitude for the life that I have and the work that I have been able to do. Look, I'm not naive to the reality of your world, of today's world, or how disheartening it is and how disheartened many of you may be. It's hard in this climate to talk about shaping justice. Because at this moment in time, regression instead of progress seems more likely. And the fear that the hard-fought gains of the last decade or two will be snatched away and return us to the unrestrained, ever-widening, carceral strait that preys upon the most, among, the most vulnerable among us, destroying lives, ripping apart families, and devastating entire communities in its wake can be an overwhelming fear. And that fear can paralyze even the fiercest advocates for change among us. But we cannot afford to be paralyzed, we cannot afford to retreat, and we cannot stay silent, not even for a moment. We have another choice here. The assaults on justice that we have seen over the past three weeks should ignite in all of us a new activism. It should inspire us and focus us and deepen our resolve. Look, you have to remember, over the past couple of decades, we have seen new consciousness awakening across this country. Americans of all races and backgrounds, the wealthy and the struggling, have actually come to realize that our system isn't working, that it's petty and racist and corrupt and inhumane and overly punitive, costly, and frankly, utterly ineffectual. That realization isn't going away. Not with a new president, not even with a new attorney general or Supreme Court justice. Because once awareness takes hold, when you begin to see injustice all around you, you can't really unlearn that, and you simply can't turn away. A spotlight was shined on injustice, and all of us have seen what the dark corners of the criminal justice system and mass incarceration looks like, what the horrifying realities of immigration detention and deportation can be, how the child welfare system preys almost exclusively and unrelentingly upon low-income women of color by taking children from parents who love them and want to kiss them goodnight, what backstreet abortions look like, what voter repression and systemic disenfranchisement is and can lead to, and what it means to live without a home or food or hope. We have seen that and we will not forget. Because that awakened consciousness is like a wave that will inevitably swell, illuminating new injustices and opening new minds as it goes along. And the thing about waves is that they just keep on coming. 
You can duck under them. You can try to swim around them and over them. But you really can't stop them. Justice is going to rise because it cannot be stopped. We have come too far to go back. We have done too much to give up. And we have lifted up too many voices for them to be silenced now. And while it is true, and it is, that sometimes justice seems fleeting, darting behind corners, obscuring itself from our view, it is also deeply enduring. It's not a delicate flower. It doesn't require a greenhouse. It's sturdy and tenacious, and it will bloom even in the dry, hot desert. And so now is the time to sow the seeds of change, fighting for and shaping justice so that it will flourish, even in what will inevitably be the desert of the next few years. If there was ever a moment to commit yourselves to shaping justice, it's right now, right here, today. Climb out from under your flannel sheets, throw off the white down comforter from the bottom of your bed, and be your most courageous selves. Have faith, because justice will rise. It will demand an open heart, but justice is going to rise. It's going to require your full attention, but justice will rise. It's not going to be easy, and it won't come quickly. But I promise you, justice is going to rise. We have never before needed so much from so many and that includes each and every one of you. But here we are. So take a pledge that you will use the incredible power of your law degree, that incredible tool unlike any other, to touch lives, to mend hearts, to make change, to right wrongs in whatever way is most true for you. Because if you do that, each and every one of you will have a hand in shaping justice. And with that, justice will rise.